And now for our time in the Word this morning, you can flip to Matthew chapter 5. From Ephesians 5 now, you can go to Matthew chapter 5. And due to various circumstances, it's been many weeks since we've been in Matthew, but it's time for us to return and resume our verse-by-verse trek through this gospel. Today we're going to pick up right where we left off last time, but since it's been a while, I'll take a minute to get you back up to speed. We left off in the middle of Matthew chapter 5, just getting into the body of the Sermon on the Mount. This is Christ's most famous and impactful sermon, where he shows that the true nature of his kingdom and his righteousness, but much of what Jesus has to say about his kingdom comes by way of contrast. See, the Jews of Christ's day, particularly the religious leaders, they fully believed they were righteous, that they were members of this kingdom, but they weren't. All they had was a phony self-righteousness propped up by their legalism and multiplied distortions of God's law. They had, they had redefined and reshaped God's law to make it seem like they were the righteous ones, but they ignored the heart. They were blind and they led astray all who followed them. Jesus, though, he came to open the eyes of the people. And so if he's going to do this, he absolutely had to expose and call out these religious leaders. He had to expose their hypocrisy and and all their distortions of God's law. I mean, someone had to set their record straight and reveal the true righteousness of God. And that's what Jesus is largely doing in the Sermon on the Mount. We're now in the thick of it, verses 21 through 48, the middle. It's where Jesus is setting up these six contrasts. And by contrasting himself with the scribes and Pharisees, He's going to show them and us what true, surpassing righteousness of his kingdom looks like. He's going to show how these religious leaders misinterpreted and misapplied God's law just to justify their own wickedness. Then he also is going to give us his own divine word revealing the heart of God's law, which also reveals the way of true righteousness. And so for us here who follow Jesus, who have been made righteous by faith in sixth and seventh commandments like that. They weren't murdering people. They weren't committing adultery. So they must be righteous. But the thing is, God looks at the heart and he seeks righteousness in the inner man. And he teaches us what is anger, but murder in the heart. And what is lust, but adultery in the heart. Who has lived free from anger and lust? But those who seek to justify the covenant, God created both temporary arrangement, negotiable. And and they did that all by twisting one little phrase in the law of Moses. By distorting the law, they, they cut themselves a blank check to divorce for really any reason they wanted, which was certainly not God's will. This is just a smokescreen, though, for their own selfish, self willed desires. Look, marriage is God's institution. He created it before the fall, gave it to mankind for our good. But to have such a low view of marriage, to think it can be so easily discarded, both dishonors God and, and has our own set, uh, set of consequences. But Christ is not going to let this stand, this, this contortion of God's law, especially since they were using the law of Moses to try and justify this. That's just too great an error with too disastrous fallout. So Christ is going to take this occasion to make another contrast whereby he shows 
the true nature of his kingdom righteousness. And what does that righteousness look like? Here it looks like a high view of marriage fidelity and and it really looks like a, a strong opposition to, to trampling marriage with just casual divorce. And this is teaching we, it can be somewhat controversial in our day and age, but we, we must take this extremely seriously because we just so happen to live in a society that has, once again, thrown open the floodgates on divorce. And just by way of introduction, let's, let's think on that a little. I mean, the bedrock of every society is the family. The family unit really is the, the source of stability, order, and procreation in every civilization. Without the family, no civilization will last. And the cornerstone of the family is what? Marriage. Just about every civilization throughout all history has had some formal institution of marriage to recognize the monogamous lifelong union of a man and woman, which is just a fitting echo of God's creation design. He created us for the two to dwell together as one. But in a fallen world, this doesn't always work out. And sometimes the two who became one want to go back to being two again. They want to separate. And the word for this is divorce. Divorce, sadly, is nothing new in this fallen world. The first codified law on divorce we know of goes back to 1760 B.C., King Hammurabi of Babylon declared that a man could divorce his wife by paying a fine, returning the dowry, and then stating, you are no longer my wife. (laughs) Now, regarding the ancient Jews, there were some instances where divorce was seen as a lesser of two evils. Malachi 2.16, God says, I hate divorce. I mean, he designed marriage. He intended it to be for life. But there are other things God hates, like, like adultery, for example. And he did make a concession for his people to live in peace when one party has abandoned or betrayed the marriage covenant. We'll hear Christ teach about that shortly. But you can't take divorce overboard, talking way overboard, and that's what the ancient Jews did. That's what our society has done once again. I mean, why is our culture declining and sinking further and further into unchecked depravity? I don't think it's hard to trace that to the decline of the family. Why is the family declining? I don't think it's hard to trace that to the decline of marriage. And why is marriage declining? I don't think it's hard to trace that to the rise of divorce. We've traded a high view of marriage for a low view of marriage. In Western countries with Christian roots inherited a high view of marriage. Divorce was always seen as a last resort. In fact, throughout most of history, in really most countries, divorce has been illegal, except for a few strict conditions. You may not even know that, but before 1970, that was the case. But things changed big time in America and the rest of the world, really, after 1970. Before that, all 50 states only recognized what were called at-fault divorces. Marriages were seen like a contract where two parties were committing together to live as one. And to get a divorce, one party had to prove that the other party was at fault for doing something that violated the contract, that they didn't hold up their end of the bargain. And only things like desertion, cruelty, and adultery were were seen as legitimate grounds for divorce. Otherwise, legally, you were not granted a divorce. But in 1970, uh, California 
Believe it or not, under Ronald Reagan, became the first state to legalize no-fault divorce. And the state would now recognize divorce for any reason, no reason. No longer did either party have to prove grounds for divorce. They could simply cite irreconcilable differences, be on their way. And the rest of the states followed suit. The floodgates opened. And what do you know? The divorce rate went through the roof. Now, of course, this coincided coincided with the moral and sexual revolution of the 70s, where a new ethic was forming in America and the West with a, a new value system. What's the greatest good? Now it's personal fulfillment. It used to be that one's primary obligation in life was to the family. And that was a good thing. That was fulfilling. But now a person's primary obligation was to self. The purpose of life is to serve self, fulfill self. And so when marriage, when my marriage is no longer personally fulfilling, when when this person is no longer my soulmate, When they don't meet my every desire, it's time to move on. I need to be happy. And really, the legalization of no-fault divorce lent a type of moral legitimacy to this thing. But there would be consequences, of course, because this institution, marriage between one man, one woman, it's still the source of children. But after 1970, you saw an entire generation, and then the one after that, affected by the the tidal wave of divorce to come that would tear apart the family. And look, from dropping out of high school to teen pregnancy to incarceration rates to anxiety and depression to their own marriages ending in divorce, study after study has, I think, conclusively displayed that divorce is not an advantage to children. Now, we still have to insert here that there's still hope and good news for divorcees and their children. Now, look, God's grace in Christ can bring all sorts of hope and healing to those who've been broken in this world. That's all of us to some degree. That God's grace, God's gospel can heal and mend any person, any relationship. We've got nothing but hope in Christ. But stepping back, view as a society, we're now downstream this decision to open the floodgates on divorce. By about 50 years, would you say it's been better for society? I mean, is any wonder now you have a whole generation of young people who, who don't care about marriage? Many of them are ready to just abandon the entire institution of marriage, thinking that what, like open relationships is the better path to peace, joy, and fulfillment? Talk about a rude awakening. And so what do we do about all this? I mean, for us as Christians in the church, we can't control society per se, but we can at least try and influence it. And that's something we must do, that the church must have a type of prophetic voice in the society. Who else is going to at least represent God's word and God's will? In that regard, we must be those who cling to and represent just God's high view of marriage to the world around us. We do this graciously, compassionately, but we still do this. Look, Christ himself was extremely compassionate with broken people. Remember the woman caught in adultery? And we too must be greatly compassionate with those caught up in the mess of divorce. And it's always messy and there's sin and brokenness and hurt. And we will use the gospel to try and bring peace and mend people between others, between God. But also like Christ, we can't shy away though from confronting the culture with the truth 
and just rightly representing God's view of marriage. When the church doesn't do this, that's when things are going to get really bad for a culture. And I think that's probably part of the reason America is in such a sad state. Back in the 70s and, and later, you had many churches who capitulated and just gave in to the changing tide of the culture and gave in to this, you know, open season divorce. Back in 1976, the United Methodist Church, which is the largest Protestant denomination in, in the country, made this statement on divorce. It says, quote, In marriages where the partners are, even after thoughtful reconsideration and counsel, estranged beyond reconciliation, we recognize divorce and the right of divorced persons to remarry and express our concern for the needs of the children of such unions. To this end, we encourage an active, accepting, and enabling commitment of the church and our society to minister to the needs of divorced persons, end quote. You know, in a sense, that sounds nice, but this is coming from the biggest denomination in America, and you see what's absent is any mention of God's word. What, what does God have to say about divorce? And if the church is just going to remain silent on these things, who else is going to at least represent God's word, God's will, God's blessing with marriage and divorce? Marriage is God's institution. So how can we not submit to his word to define it, defend it, uphold it? And how can we not, sub, or how can we subvert Christ, who's the only one with authority to give any exception to end it, to, to lawfully end it? We just, we need a clear word from the scriptures on these matters that we might live out Christ's righteousness in our lives and that we might just rightly represent his kingdom to the world around us. And that's what we're going to do today from our text, hearing from Christ himself. So now we can get into Matthew 5, 31 through 32. It's short, but in summary fashion, Jesus himself is just going to cut a straight line through marriage and divorce. In a very simple, direct, and powerful fashion, he's going to correct the scribes and the Pharisees. And in so doing, he's going to give us God's clear will on divorce. And since we find ourselves living in a culture of open divorce, and we, we desperately need to learn and heed Christ's word here. So let's do that. Matthew 5, 31 through 32. You can listen as I read that. That the third contrast in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 31. Christ says, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, the sex is very short, to the point. It doesn't need much outlining, but... Just to structure our time, let's walk through it along two points with this contrast. And first, the culture's view of divorce. That's verse 31, the culture's view of divorce. And we'll explain, but look again at verse 31. He says, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And Christ begins by saying, it was said, now, that's an abbreviated version of how he introduces these six contrasts. The long version, you saw that back in verse 27. You have heard that it was said. Verse 28, but I say to you. He's making a contrast. This is just the condensed version of that. Now, again, you have to remember 
the, the type of contrast he's making. He's not contrasting himself with the Old Testament law as if he came to abolish or overturn the law. That's not true at all. He came to fulfill the law. Really, the contrast is between himself and what the scribes and Pharisees said about the law. It's really what they taught. They were the ones guilty of mishandling and misinterpreting the law for their own gain. And so he's going to set them straight by giving them the true word. This explains why Jesus is not directly quoting the scriptures here. Your Bible, especially if you have a study Bible, it might indicate verse 31 is a reference to Deuteronomy, verse 24. Uh, or 24 verse 1. It is a reference, but it's not a direct quote. He's not quoting the verse. Instead, he's paraphrasing what that verse says, as taught, as twisted, by the scribes and Pharisees. This is how they distorted that Old Testament verse. He said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This is their position. Now, this is it's a summary. You're, you're probably wondering, like, okay, but like, what's the problem here? What is Jesus taking issue with? Is it the part where you're sending your wife away? Is it the certificate of divorce part? Like, what's, what's he taking issue with? The, the main issue is how the Jews twisted this Old Testament verse to justify divorce for any reason. Now, to explain that, to make sense of that, you probably want to see the original verse. So, just keep a thumb in Matthew and go back to Deuteronomy 24. Fifth book of the Bible, go back to Deuteronomy 24. Like this, the Old Testament says surprisingly little about divorce. We wish God said more, that he answered every conceivable question we might have, but he didn't. And in the Torah for national Israel, this is what he gave them. Deuteronomy 24, which you have here is known as case law. Moses is not making any general sweeping statements about divorce here. And he's certainly not commanding or even condoning divorce. Rather, he's just dealing with one specific case. And later, wise judges could use this case to give them the wisdom to judge other cases rightly. Deuteronomy 24. Let's read verses 1 through 4. Just kind of follow along. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Some case law. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, that's a mouthful. It, it feels like legal language. And you're probably wondering, like, what, what exactly did we just read? So let's just explain this. It's actually not as complicated as you think, but it starts with a married man. He finds some indecency in his wife. Literally, it says something improper. But that Hebrew phrase is ambiguous. It's not defined. What is this indecency he's found in his wife? The text doesn't say. It couldn't have been adultery itself because according to the Torah, adultery came with the death penalty. That's how serious for God's covenant people he took marriage. 
And that's why you don't see very much teaching on divorce because the main reason adultery, well, it ended the marriage one way. But here, this, this something improper must refer to some sort of sexual impropriety, something that stops short of full adultery. But as a result, the husband decided to divorce his wife. He does that by putting this certificate of divorce in her hand, sending her out. This doesn't condone this certificate of divorce, but this was an accepted practice, and it was meant as a protection for the woman. This certificate really protected the woman's reputation against the charge of adultery, and it also gave her the grounds to remarry. And it's assumed that the wife would quickly remarry, given how inconceivably difficult it was for single women, young single women, to survive in that culture. So in this case, this woman leaves, she remarries. But then her second husband, likewise, turns against her and divorces her. Or, or maybe he dies. But the point is, either way, she's found herself single again. And so what then? Well, verse 4 prohibits her first husband from taking her back and remarrying her. And that's the only real prohibition in the whole passage. The first husband can't remarry her again. What's the logic behind this? Well, it seems that under the surface, this case law was designed to discourage hasty divorces and to protect women. If a man claimed to divorce his wife for sexual defilement, but then he later remarried her after her second marriage, I mean, wouldn't that expose his initial divorce as fraudulent, hypocritical? The sad reality is, though, in, in such cultures, women were far more prone and vulnerable to being taken advantage of like this and exploited. And this case law would protect women to a degree, and it would discourage husbands from hasty, illegitimate divorces. I mean, if you're going to divorce your wife, claiming not adultery, but something close, I mean, you better be truthful because you are forbidden from taking her back. Now, here's the thing. This is, this is all the Torah says about divorce. This is it. What do we really have here? This passage deals with just one very specific case, and it, it comes after a long chain of conditions. This is if a man marries... And if he finds something indecent in his wife, and if he gives her a certificate of divorce, if she remarries, and then if her second husband divorces her or dies, then the first husband cannot remarry her. That's it. That's all this is saying. It's a very specific case law. And like I said, it had value in giving wisdom to later judges who could judge justly the people. But you see, what you don't have here is what? A command. There's no command to divorce here. Where's the command to divorce? There's not even an encouragement to divorce here. In actuality, this passage is meant to discourage hasty divorces. The text does not condone the actions of the first or second husband. It simply regulates divorce and remarriage as a concession to human weakness. So you can see for yourself, the, the Old Testament law does not say much about divorce. But the thing is, that didn't stop the Jews in Christ's day from taking this passage, this very passage, and running with it. They took this specific case law on divorce, and they turned it into a command for husbands to divorce their wives for any reason. Now, over the centuries, two dominant 
rabbinical schools emerged, and they tried to explain and interpret Old Testament law. And the question they grappled with here is, you know, what was the indecency the husband found in the first, in first place that enabled him to divorce his wife? There's a conservative school, the school of Shammai, that, that much like Jesus, allowed for divorce only in the case of sexual sin. There's a more liberal school, the school of Hillel. And they took a, a much broader interpretation of this something indecent. And they, they said it's basically anything displeasing to the husband. And that list built and built over the years. <clears throat> Let me just give you some examples of acceptable grounds of divorce according to the rabbis. And really the Mishnah. And that was the codified law of the rabbis, the Mishnah. So according to the Mishnah, a man could divorce his wife if he found anything displeasing in her, and that included any physical defect. They wrote if she had a head that was wedge-shaped or turnip-shaped or hammer-shaped. <laughs> I haven't seen those, but <laughs> if she had poor posture, no eyebrows, one eyebrow, or bushy eyebrows. If she had an overbite, an underbite, or missing teeth. These are all grounds for divorce, looking, looking pretty rough. Poor performance also counted if she failed to grind flour, bake bread, wash clothes, cook food, nurse the children, divorce could be sought. If the wife visited the home of her parents against her husband's wishes, if she spoke to any man in the street, if she yelled at her husband so loud it could be heard outside the home, he could divorce her. Basically, as it goes, if she burned his toast or if he found someone prettier, he could divorce her. It's really divorce for any reason the man wanted. And look, all this was going on in Christ's day. In this case, the Jews were actually worse than the Romans. The ancient historian Josephus confirms that in that day, Jews could divorce, he says, for any reason whatsoever. Really, for any reason you wanted. And the Pharisees themselves likewise confirmed this view when they came up to Jesus later in Matthew 19. And they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They say, for any reason at all. Where did they get that idea? Of course, that's not lawful. But the thing is, they made this lawful by twisting Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. And they did this to make provision for their own lusts and desires. In a world completely dominated by men in that agrarian culture, that's just, they would get away with it. And so the Jews essentially legalized no-fault divorce. And in so doing, they, they made marriage kind of meaningless. Marriage wasn't a permanent commitment at all. I mean, when you have widespread divorce like this for any reason, it's like the husband is basically crossing his fingers behind his back when he says, I do at the altar because he could do what he wants at any point. And this was the culture's view of divorce. Back then, this was the Jewish culture's view of divorce, which guess what? It sounds kind of like today's view of divorce. You can divorce for any reason. And back then, the common person, not knowing any better, simply took what these religious leaders as taught as true. Like, that. well, they, they know the Bible, they know the Torah, like, they, this must be the case. And by claiming biblical grounds, these religious authorities actually thought they were being righteous by divorcing their wives for, for these reasons. And that's how backwards and upside down things were. But like today, this, this flippant view of divorce had consequences. I mean, women and children suffered the most as divorce robbed the family of stability. There are actually even worse consequences than they realized in their hardness of heart. 
by going against God's will and multiplying divorce, they were also inadvertently multiplying adultery. And this is what Jesus teaches. So let's consider now, secondly, Christ's view of divorce. The culture's view of divorce. Now, how about the Christ's view of divorce? And this is in verse 32 where he corrects them. And this is where he says, I say to you, he's going to let them know how it really is. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, Christ gives one exception clause here. We'll save that for just a bit. But let's just first deal with what Jesus says about divorce. And you can see, far from commanding it or condoning it or even approving of it, Jesus teaches that divorce is a serious offense to God and gives rise to adultery. Already, this is a far cry from the Jewish notion of divorce for any reason. Jesus says that whoever divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. Now, you're surely wondering, like, what does that mean? There's an obvious assumption here that that woman will remarry. Right, that pretty much was a given in that culture, that the right to divorce opened up the right to remarry. But seeing how the, the first divorce was not legitimate, how just serving your wife a piece of paper doesn't actually dissolve the marriage in God's eyes, well, that means the first husband and wife, in God's eyes, they're still one flesh. But when the divorced woman inevitably remarries, well, then she becomes guilty of adultery. Because in God's eyes, she's still one flesh with her first husband. So that means, look, the divorced husband, the divorced wife, and both of the new spouses all inadvertently become guilty of adultery when they remarry because the first marriage was not legitimately ended. That's what he is saying. I'm not saying that. Christ is saying that. Look, this already would have been a stunning indictment on the religious leaders of Israel, especially those who had illegitimately divorced their wives. I mean, Christ completely condemns their frivolous divorce practices. And he redefines illegitimate remarriage after illegitimate divorce as adultery. These religious leaders, they they never thought of themselves as sinners, like the normal people. They, They weren't sinners. But how many of them now are actually adulterers because of what he teaches? But clearly, though, Christ is most concerned with the sanctity of marriage. And like, if you don't have legitimate grounds, a little piece of paper does not dissolve the marriage covenant in God's eyes. To divorce and remarry illegitimately, yeah, it would. That remarriage would de facto end the first marriage. So you now are legitimately married to your second spouse. But like Christ says it, it makes you guilty of adultery. Look, you can tell how serious the marriage covenant is to God. Already, you should learn not to ever divorce lightly. Now, look, these two verses, they're not the totality of what Jesus taught on marriage and divorce. It's the shortest version we have, the summary version. On a a later occasion, the Pharisees came up to Jesus trying to trip him up in some questioning, and they asked him a question about divorce. And so this teaching is sharp. Just to round it out, let me show you Matthew 19. Go ahead and turn there. So we're going to see Christ's longer response where he adds some, I think, important teaching on the same question. So we'll come back to Matthew 5 again, but go to Matthew 19. A later occasion, the same type of people, Pharisees, come up to him, questioning him. So let's see what he says when he has a little bit more time to talk. 
Matthew 19, verse 3. It says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So you can see again how they they first come at Jesus with this ridiculous question which only reflected their view on divorce as legitimate for any reason whatsoever. What gave them that idea? Not, not the Bible. Of course that's not lawful to divorce for any reason whatsoever. Not to God. But you notice Jesus does not directly answer their question according to the law. He answers them even more fundamentally by going back to God's created order. This, this issue goes back to creation. God created marriage pre-fall. He made them male and female. And from the beginning, he established that one man and one woman would leave, cleave, and weave. Right? They would leave father and mother, mother. They would cleave together and become one flesh. This is a spiritual union, which has a physical dimension of intimacy. But this was all God's doing. And so as, as Christ confirms what God has joined together, let no man separate. Don't put man's will above God's will. Don't let self-will drive you to go against God's design. He intended for the two to unite together as one for life. So do you really think it's good and right in God's eyes to divorce because she burned your toast? Do you think that's righteous? Or today, you know, why do most people get divorced? According to many recent studies on the reasons for divorce, Adultery is not at the top of the list. I mean, it happens, but you have things like falling out of love, control issues, financial problems, health problems, conflict. Those are are closer to the top of the list. All summed up by a convenient term, irreconcilable differences. Look, couples may have real hardships and challenges. And like I said before, we, we have to strive to help those people with compassion and grace ministering a gospel of reconciliation. But we have to take seriously what the Lord is saying, that when you take vows and you join together as one flesh, that union is just not so easily dissolved in God's eyes. You can see if it were up to Jesus, divorce would not be legal in all 50 states for any reason whatsoever. But look at verse 7, Matthew 19, because next comes a follow-up question. Verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. You already see the distortion, right? We just read Deuteronomy 24. There's zero command there. They're misrepresenting the verse according to the rabbis. Jesus responds, verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Same teaching, by the way. But look, no command to divorce was ever given. Moses permitted divorce as a concession because of their hardness of heart. But even then, this permission, as we read, had a very narrow and specific condition of, of indecency, of, of a sexual sin. 
The Apostle Paul, under Christ's authority, affirms uh, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse as a second concession, 1 Corinthians 7. And so together, these form the only two biblical, biblically recognized permissions for divorce. Apart from adultery or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, you don't have a legitimate divorce in God's eyes or a legitimate non-adulterous remarriage. So to remarry after such a divorce, Jesus says now in both passages, leads to committing adultery. Now let's go ahead and explain the one exception Jesus gives in both passages. He basically repeats the concession of Moses, which is sexual sin or adultery. You can go back to Matthew 5 now. In Matthew 19, the exception is immorality. Matthew 5, the the exception is unchastity in the English. But in the Greek, it's the same word in both passages. It's porneia. The Greek word porneia. And that's, it's a broad term for sexual sin. Now, since Jesus is talking about marriage, adultery is a fitting uh, translation, a fitting thought. But this pornea, the sexual sin would include incest, homosexuality, prostitution, molestation, so on. So we're talking sexual morality. And on these grounds, divorce is not commanded, but it is permitted. That's because such sexual sin violates the one flesh union far more than, than a piece of paper. I mean, adultery, that the union of bodies without the union of souls just wreaks havoc on the one flesh relationship of husband and wife. Even still, though, even after that, it's not commanded. Divorce is not commanded. Even after adultery, if there's true repentance and change, forgiveness and reconciliation are always preferred. I mean, God's grace has covered all of our sin, and that grace would compel us to do the same thing. I mean, did not God command the prophet Hosea to marry the harlot Gomer, who continued her harlotrous ways, and he took her back again and again by God's command as a picture of how God unconditionally set his love on his people and will forgive them time and time again. This is God's picture of his love. We're we're compelled to be the same. In reality, we're all spiritual adulterers. I mean, every time we sin, we're betraying our love for God and our union with Christ. And we have wandering eyes that lust after the world. But God, in his grace, continually forgives us as we repent. And so, look, even after something as, as hurtful and destructive as adultery, if there's true, genuine repentance... I mean, there's gospel glory to be found when there's forgiveness and reconciliation. And God is always glorified when a marriage can be restored. But God knows this is a fallen world. Sin reigns and it has ruined, has spoiled his created order. He's called his people to peace. and, And for this reason, he has permitted legitimate divorce under two cases only, adultery and abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. This is just what scripture teaches about this concept of divorce, the topic of divorce. It's a a sad but real concession for life in a fallen world. One exists in the kingdom, but we're not in that kingdom yet. Now, let's take a step back. Sermon on the Mount. What, What are we learning from the Lord this morning? Bigger picture, Christ is the king of God's kingdom. That kingdom is not of this world. That kingdom is characterized by true righteousness, we're not righteous. We're sinners. We don't belong in that kingdom. That's why God sent Jesus to come to die, to redeem a people 
to make them righteous by his grace that we might inherit, populate this kingdom. And by faith, we can be justified in Christ and made heirs of his kingdom. Now, those who are called to Christ, we we still live in this world, but we're called to now be salt and light. Remember earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, we're called to be salt and light to a dark, decaying world around us. We're called to live now as if we belong to Christ and his kingdom because we do. And so that, that fact, the fact of salvation has so many implications, which are being fleshed out throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount. But this morning, although controversial, I mean, this, this just means we must align ourselves, not with the world, but with the Lord on marriage and divorce. That if we belong to his kingdom, we have to have the highest view of marriage possible. I mean, this is God's institution, his work of uniting two together as one flesh. When you make these vows, you better take them seriously. That they cannot be so easily cast aside in God's eyes without consequences. And I realize some of you here, past, present, future, may go through serious marital strife. Massive issues may emerge. You may then see that exit sign and think, divorce, I mean, it'd be a whole lot easier. Everyone in the world is doing it. Why not just, just go be free? But look, we follow a Lord who says, no, like not so fast. That's never a door we run to. And most of the time that door is closed by the Lord. It's only open for a couple of very specific permissions. But instead, we just, we have to be a people who fight for marriage, who uphold it, who represent it. We have to be a people of the Beatitudes, pure in heart, meek, merciful, that leads us to be peacemakers. We just, we just have to embrace the hard work of repenting of our own sin, dealing with differences, setting aside sin, pursuing reconciliation. We're equipped by the Spirit. We, we can do this work. But if you need help, seek it. Seek out biblical counsel. It's worth all of your time and effort. God is a God of peace, and he can restore joy in your marriage if you just submit to him and his will. You just die to self and self-will. Submit to him and his will. He can redeem your marriage and use it as a trophy of his transforming grace. He can make you a testimony to the world that, that his ways are truly better. And this is a witness our world, once again, desperately needs. But if, if we as the church simply just join the world with their view of casual, no-fault divorce, what's our witness? Following Jesus really makes no difference in how you actually live. May it never be. May we all take the Lord's teaching here to heart this morning. Now, before we finish up, I want to address one final matter. Because whenever you hear the Lord's teaching on divorce, people have questions. All the what ifs. And given what we've learned, can I just answer in advance one question that will surely come up from what Jesus said in Matthew 5? Someone even here might be asking, what if this is me? Meaning, what if in my past, I divorced my spouse, but it wasn't for adultery? So what if I have an illegitimate divorce according to the scriptures, but now I'm remarried? So I guess I'm guilty of adultery. Is this a scarlet letter? Am I perpetually living in adultery? Should I divorce my present spouse and try and reconcile with the first? What should I do? Well, we've heard from Christ himself. 
this morning. Yes, this means, if this is you, he said it. You are guilty of adultery. But no, this does not make you perpetually adulterous. What should you do about this? I mean, there's a good chance you didn't even know this until right now. So what do you do? Well, how do we respond to all sin in life? We repent. I mean, now that your eyes have been opened to the truth, your heart broken by the conviction that in your past, granted, you may not have known better, but in your past, you did wrong. So you repent. You take that sin to the cross like you take all other sins to the cross. And Lord Jesus died on the cross to pay for that too. He stands ready to cleanse us and forgive us of all unrighteousness. This is included. So you just go to him. He will forgive, clean your conscience, and restore you. And then stay in your current marriage. Two wrongs don't make a right. You don't have grounds to divorce your current spouse. And no, yet, though things may have started in the wrong, God still recognizes your current marriage. He sanctifies it. And just use this conviction, though, to honor God with your marriage this time around. This time around, we're going to do it right. This time around, we're, we're going to put God first. We're going to fight for this marriage. We're going to overcome our differences. We're going to glorify God with our second marriage. And look, we, we serve a God of grace. We're all broken by sin one way or another. Divorce, not divorce, something. We all have something. Up. We've been warped and maligned, deformed by sin. But God redeems. He covers a lot, well, all of our sin by grace. And he can and still will use you for his kingdom and his glory if you just submit your life to him. But like seeing that we live in a culture of open divorce, I know that there's going to be many here who have this in your past. But if you seek the Lord, I can encourage you. Consider the example of King David. David himself was the type of Christ in the Old Testament, right? He's like the, the forerunner to the Messiah the type of Christ in the Old Testament. But wasn't David himself like a literal adulterer and murderer? He was. But he was forgiven by grace, justified by faith, used by God as he repented. But think about this. Even after his adultery, even after that adultery led to the death of Uriah, he repented. Later, he took Bathsheba as his wife. It's pretty easy to say that marriage did not start off in righteousness. But David truly repented. He returned to the Lord with all of his heart. And God forgave him, cleansed him, still used him. And later, David Bathsheba had another son who was named Solomon. And doesn't Solomon show up in the lineage of Jesus? Remember how we started Matthew's gospel? Matthew 1, verse 6, the genealogy of Jesus. What does Matthew 1, 6 say? It says, Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Why don't delete that part? Like, why are you mentioning that? Why are you bringing that up? <laughs> this is on purpose. I mean, what did we learn back in Matthew 1? The whole genealogy is filled with nothing but sinners, adulterers, prostitutes. But, you know, who else does God have to choose? <laughs> He's a God of grace. Well, we've learned today, we have to take seriously the words of our Savior. That means we have to have a firm stance on the sanctity of marriage. And we have to firmly oppose flippant divorce. We have to align ourselves with the Lord, as hard as it is in this culture. But at the same time, still remember that this is the same Savior 
who deals compassionately with broken sinners who are ready to submit to him. Like that woman caught in adultery, justly condemned at that point, but he opted for mercy instead of judgment to forgive because he's the savior, the same savior who came to seek and save broken sinners. And so there's just, there's nothing but hope in Christ's gospel. So whatever your, your backstory, whatever your, your past of sin, what, what are you going to do today and tomorrow? There's nothing but hope for us in this gospel again. So just continue to give thanks for Jesus. Whatever your past today, take your life and your marriage and just put them up on the altar to, to him, to offer up to him, to his kingdom, to his glory, to live for his righteousness. He will bless. Let's thank him for his teaching and his grace. Our Father in heaven, we, we do give you thanks this morning for time in your word. A passage, you, some just want to skip, but we can't. We need every verse of your scriptures. You've given them to us for a reason, to guide us, to instruct us, to rebuke us, to convict us, but also to give us direction and hope for how we are to live now. We thank you for Christ, the Savior, who has come, who has died for us to redeem a bride, a bride that was unworthy of his love. But you said it on us anyway. The Savior has died and risen for us anyway. And now for us, by faith in him, we are redeemed. We're forgiven. We thank you for Christ's own love for us, his saving, redeeming love. We pray you help apply it to marriages, even in this room. For those who have sin in their past, adultery, divorce in their past that was unjust, illegitimate, break them, just cause them to repent and be fully forgiven and then move on with joy, to, to leave with joy, leaping in gladness. The Savior has come who can make glory out of the mess of sin in their life. May they rejoice in forgiveness. For marriages that may even still be hurting or, or going through hardship, perhaps on a path to an illegitimate divorce, apply the gospel to their lives, to their hearts, to their own souls, that they would just repent, seek your will, put down their interests, serve you and one another, reconcile, find the way by the Spirit to reconcile, to live in peace. You are glorified and magnified when, when marriages thrive and stay together, especially in the church. Who else is going to witness to this world of your ways? Your kingdom, which is better and which is coming. Until it comes, just preserve us by your spirit. May we uphold your word, your will to this lost and dying world around us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.